Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we, um, we're so grateful for the glories of the cross. Today we are reminded of the wonder of the cross, the beauty of the cross. We thank You, Lord, that it is our meditation that as we think upon the cross, we see our full redemption. We see all of the worth and the value of Christ, who was our propitiation there, who was our substitute, our sacrifice, who because of His cross work, all of the privileges and the blessings of the cross flow to us freely through Him, by faith, and through Your Spirit. And so, Father, we're encouraged today to meditate upon Him, His work, His blessings, to think about our union with Your Son, Jesus, to think about the fact that we are blessed in the heavenly places in Him, that every spiritual blessing comes to us through Him. And so, Father, today we pray that we would be encouraged by the riches and the wealth of Christ. We ask for Your help now, Lord, as we look at this book, as continue to look at what Paul has given us here in Thessalonians We ask that You would enrich our hearts, Lord, that You would instruct us and that You would teach us from Your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are going to continue our time looking at what I've entitled the fruit of election. The fruit of election. And this time you can see that in verse 4 as it comes into clear focus as the Apostle Paul is thanking God and giving another reason why he is giving his thanksgiving to God. And now in verse 4, he makes it very explicit, saying, knowing brethren beloved by God, and then the overarching reality is this reality here that he says, his choice of you or his election of you. And so we would be sort of remiss if we did not begin with something of a biblical theology of election. I said last week, it's been a while since I've actually preached on the doctrine of election. And matter of fact, you can go uh, on our website and you can look at a series of sermons I did. I think I did about six uh, sermons on uh, the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace. You can go there and look that up. I think it's called something like... um, Sovereign grace or something like that. But here we have a chance to really look at this doctrine and to see that it is God's will uh, that His election not only be made known, but that His election be part of what we celebrate about God. That election is part of His glory. Election is part of what makes God so good And for all the controversy that goes along with the doctrine of election, we are quite out of step with the will of God in our lives if we do not look upon this doctrine and and, um, if we do not finally praise Him for His sovereign grace. You think of what Nehemiah says in terms of election. We know based on the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, that God called Abraham, but Nehemiah interprets that calling as election. 
Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 5, he says, Bless the Lord, your God, forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Notice the emphasis on praise, praise, praise. He says, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. What that means is not only the lower register heaven that we look out and see and we gaze into the sky and we see either a blue, beautiful blue sky or we see either a gray sky like today. Not just the lower register heavens that are mentioned in Genesis, but even more than that, he's talking about the invisible heavens, the heavens in the heavenly realms. He made it all. And he says, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to all of them. And the heavenly hosts bow down before you. So what is Nehemiah giving us here? He's giving us an incredible um, Uh, just magnificent, beatific vision of the sovereign God of the universe. And then he comes down, in a sense, he sort of zooms in his sovereign purpose to one person, and that is to Abraham. Look at verse 7, if you're there, Nehemiah 9, verse 7. You are the Lord God, not who called Abraham, but now we know what it really means in Genesis and other places that God would call Abraham is you chose Abraham. So there is the language, the Hebrew language of election. You chose him and you brought him out of Ur, the Chaldees, and you gave him the name Abraham. As a result of election, what election produces in your life is a changed identity. You become one of those, as it says earlier in Genesis, that call upon the name of the Lord. You are identified by your relationship to God. I'm going to keep reading for a reason. You may not get it at first, but look at what it says in verse 8. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him, the Abrahamic covenant, to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, the, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Gershagite, he says, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. Why do I read about Jebusite and Canaanite and Amorite? I read that not because they're, you know, they're interesting Hebrew names, I read that because what election also means is that you become God's chosen race. You become God's highly favored child. You become part of God's people that are exalted above all other peoples. God tells Israel in Isaiah, Among all the nations, only you have I chosen. Now, we know that on a national level, that Israel was chosen as a, as a type, if you would, of the true Israel of God, which is people who are in Christ Jesus, Christians. 
And what happened to Israel on a national level, being chosen out of all the different nations of the world, that was only a type, a symbol, a token of true, ultimate, spiritual, redemptive election. Isn't that amazing? And that's why we have to begin by looking at this doctrine of election because it is the very purpose for which Paul is giving thanks. Now, I I began by telling you, look at the emphasis on praise. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 because, and this is what I did also in my series on uh, the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God. I pointed out that unless you have concluded with praise, you still have not allowed the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, like election, predestination, foreknowledge, and those things to land on you the way that God wants them to land on you, namely so that you can say with Nehemiah, with Paul, praise his name. It's meant to elicit praise. Uh, this is one of the reasons why years back, oh man, I date myself here, but many years back, probably it was 17 years ago, that I had to literally leave the church that I was at because I was being told election is a doctrine you need to be quiet about. We don't really preach on that. We don't talk too loud about that. You have to hide your John Piper books and stuff. And then I read Ephesians chapter 1. And I thought, how does that reconcile with what I'm reading here in Ephesians? Because according to Paul, he's not hiding it. He starts the letter by talking about it. And he says in verse 3, you know this passage, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the emphasis on blessing, just like Nehemiah. Bless the Lord of heaven and earth. Here too, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. See, it's a blessing. Election means you should say thank you. Right? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. See, This is exactly what could be said. You could take Ephesians 1 and take it out of your Bible. Don't do this, but you could take and put it back into Nehemiah and it'd be the perfect commentary on what we just read from Nehemiah about Abraham's own election. Abraham was chosen before the foundation of the world and he has been blessed in Christ with all spiritual blessings that he would be holy and blameless before him. And then... Really, verse 5 begins at the end of verse 4. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Keep reading. Verse 6, to the praise. When's the last time you heard a praise song, a worship song? When's the last time you turned on the Christian radio? Risky proposition nowadays. And heard a popular worship song Praising God for election, predestination, and adoption. You won't hear it. You know why? Because the Christian community is afraid of God's infinity. They are afraid of His sovereignty. And they are downright ashamed of it. But Paul was not ashamed. 
Paul exalted in the sovereignty of God. And that's what he's doing in Thessalonians. He is thanking God for his choice of you. There's no timidity in the Apostle Paul when it comes to this. If you would, go back to the Thessalonian letters and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Because there we find that this whole sovereign act and sovereign initiative of election is always ultimately conceived in Christ. And for good reason. Look at verse 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of God, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Boy, I just stay all day in that verse, right? It was for his, it was for this, he called you. Through our gospel. Why did God call Abraham? Why does God call you? So that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is being spoken about when God says to Abraham that he will give you the land of the Canaanite and the Jebusite and the Amorite and all these people. What he's saying is that I'm giving you the kingdom of God. And that kingdom will squash all other kingdoms. What do you think is coming at the second coming? The destruction of all other kingdoms on earth. You can book it. It's coming. And when it comes, Revelation tells us, ah, the kingdom of our God, has, or the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdom of our God and His Christ. That's what's at stake here. We are being chosen so that we can inherit and gain the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ and His glory. You feel blessed and highly privileged yet? Because that's what election should do to us. We should feel so highly favored and blessed. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which He granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Listen to that language. Literally, the word from all eternity, pra, chronon, onion, literally means before time eternal. Before eternal time, if there's even a way to wrap your brain around that. Before time eternal, He chose us in Christ Jesus. How can we diminish the sovereignty of God? How can we belittle it? How can we ignore it? How can we minimize it? How dare we approach it with our little mittens and try to lighten the blow of the sovereignty of God, so to speak? This is His glory that He's manifesting to us. And we won't do that because Paul didn't do it. Peter did not do it. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It's another opening to another letter. And he says to all the Christians in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, all of these Christians from all these different districts and all these different cities scattered across Asia, he says who are elect or chosen 
according to the foreknowledge of God. God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Election, foreknowledge, predestination, adoption. This is what it means to be brethren beloved by God. Isn't that amazing? This is what election is all about. It produces a myriad of fruit in our lives. And the one thing that I want to focus on with you today as we think about what actually what uh, election actually produces is I want to focus on the theology of preaching so that what God produces in us is the preaching of His Word when He is going to move for His people. Just had one page of my notes out of, uh, out of order. I don't know how that happened. I blame Eden. It's a mystery. One of those mysteries that will go unresolved in my mind for eternity. Well, then again, he'll reveal it to me then. So. But election, this glorious subject, is not without its evidence. That's what we learned last week, is that if God cho- chooses you, He elects you, it's for His purpose, yes, but it also has real, tangible, practical evidence of that. And this should be a great encouragement to us, that your Christian fruit, if it is there, if you are productive, if you are growing, if you are maturing, it's not just for the sake of others to see. It's not just for the sake of edifying others. It's actually proof. It's actually evidence of your election and mine. Praise God. It's a practical way that God and His sovereignty can take something so transcendental, so metaphysical of an idea as election that's sort of this abstract idea floating out there in our minds and then make it very practical to say, You can know and you can have confidence in your election if, like the Thessalonians, you have what he's already talked about, which was the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. If those are virtues in your life, then that should build great confidence that God has, in fact, in his sovereign grace, chosen you from the beginning in Christ Jesus. But the first thing to note is that God, in his sovereignty, ordains Uh, the means to the ends of election, we could say. If God has chosen you, then God has also chosen the way in which your election will come to fruition. I mean, for me, it was just to be exposed at an early age to the Bible. It was because for me, I had my stepfather who was an influence in my life. I had a boss at work who was an influence in my life spiritually. And so uh, on the night or the morning, I can't remember, God was getting a hold of my heart. I knew exactly where to go. I knew exactly what to do. I had to go. I need to talk to a Christian like my stepdad. I need to, I need to pick up a Bible. I need to figure this out because God was calling me. And God had ordained all of those steps. I can still remember being at a store and having a dear elderly woman look at me with the most peculiar face I've ever seen in my, in my life. And she sat there just staring at me, almost like intrusively staring at me. And I wasn't a good guy back then. Not that I'm now, but you know what I mean? I was a really bad guy. But I looked at her and I said, what are you looking at? And she looked at me and she says, she said something like, you know what you have to do, right? 
Like, am I in the Twilight Zone? And I can't recall because this was, you know, 21 years ago, something like that, maybe longer than that. And she said something like, you know that you have to get right with God. And I remember just, who are you? Like, what? And then I left and that was it. But that memory never left me. That little seed that she planted in my heart at the depth of my depravity came back to haunt me. That little old lady. God ordained for that elderly woman to be in that store that day so that she can give the gospel seed, a little kernel of of the gospel truth of the Bible and to put it in my heart. And God used that to convert, you know, as part of the conversion process. If I can use the word process. It was part of the story of how God drew me and called me. See, God... When he has someone that he has chosen, or even a group of people like the Thessalonians, this is a whole community of elect people that resided in Thessalonica. Look at Acts chapter 18. When this happens, God will bring the means to make that election real, to bring it about in a sense, to bring it to realization. This time he's in Corinth. Just left Thessalonica. Went to Thessalonica, went to Berea, got chased out of there. He was in Berea, got persecuted again, had to go to Athens, went to Athens. From Athens, he had to flee again. He went to Corinth. Now he's at Corinth, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision. By the way, because Kurios is used, it's probably Jesus. Jesus coming to Paul through a vision and saying to him, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Come on, Paul. Speak. Open your mouth. Keep, say, keep talking about the gospel. For I am with you. Isn't this, what a glorious, comforting uh, uh, vision, I mean, that he had here. I mean, this is remarkably comforting for a guy that just got chased out of three different cities being persecuted. You don't think this was comforting to him? He says, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. See, when God has many people in that city, what happens is that God unleashes some form of missionary evangelistic gospel preaching, some sort of evangelical effort to get to his people. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So glorious, right? So so glorious. But what about the nature of this preaching? Go back to First Thess chapter 1 and look with me at what I want to focus on today, which was not just that introduction on election, but when God, as the fruit of election, when God ordains that some would be elect and chosen, God ordains that it would be accompanied by true gospel preaching. So my focus today is on preaching more than anything. Look at what it says. It says, He chose you. And He says, And for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. And as I started getting into the nuts and bolts of this text exegetically, it just began to just yield more and more riches that I couldn't 
go past verse 5. But the first thing to note here in terms of what this preaching looks like is that, the, that true preaching is powerful. It's powerful preaching. Now, we, we need to talk a little bit about that because it's powerful preaching, which means not necessarily that it's some sort of loud preaching, like I'm being a bit loud right now, but it doesn't need to be loud preaching. It, need, it doesn't need to be, you know, zeal-filled, tear-jerking, you know, barn-burner preaching. That's not what makes preaching true preaching. I will remind you that many of the reformers, when they preached, they were as boring and monotone as, you know, as you can think about. Jonathan Edwards is famous for being a monotone preacher. He didn't inflect his voice very much. He sat and read a manuscript and scarcely ever got emotional, at least visibly or, or audibly. And yet... God in his sovereignty chose Edwards and then the lightning rod of George Whitfield to bring the great awakening. Amazing. It doesn't need to be accompanied by external show and pomp and those kinds of expressions of zeal. But what I think, because then we have to define when Paul says that his, his gospel... Notice what he says, our gospel. It's, it's almost like we'd have to pause there for a second and say, true preaching is, is when preaching is owned by the preacher. It better be your gospel. It better be, the gospel that you're preaching better be the gospel that you actually believe in, right? And so this is, this is you know, Paul does this often where he takes ownership of the gospel. It is my gospel, he says in Romans. He says here, our gospel, he says, did not come to you and Word only. That's so good, you guys. Because what he's saying here is that they weren't just talk. It wasn't just propositional truth that he came with. He he didn't just come with a bunch of data. He came with more than that, more than just information, more than just word only. He says he came with power. And he he actually uses the prepositional phrase, in power. And so, you know, you would think one word, that's easy enough. Why is there 10 pages in the commentary about that one word? (laughs) Because the question is, is what did that power look like? And what exactly is it referring to when he says power? Is he referring to what maybe we would uh, have the first inclination to think about in our minds would be like, well, when he says it came in power, what he's talking about is that they they uh, they were performing miracles and signs and wonders, which happened in uh, the book of Acts, all over the place. There was uh, preaching that was accompanied with signs and wonders and miracles in the same way that you'll find in Galatians. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, for example, uh, another very, very early congregation that Paul would have founded, you see the same dynamic there, beginning in verse, uh, beginning in verse 5. He says, So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles... Among you, isn't that interesting there? Because the word there is the word powers. Now, listen to the distinction. In 1 Thessalonians, he says power. And in Galatians, and in, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, and other places, he uses the word powers, plural. 
Normally, when miracles are intended, the author will use the plural form of dunamis to refer to some effusions of, of miraculous power going out, okay? Once, I mean, almost predominant, I would say the dominant way to use the word power there for miracles is in the plural. When it is in the singular, it almost always means something else. And my conclusion now is that when it's used in a more general, undefined way, because he doesn't say in power, which is X, Y, and Z. He doesn't define it that way. You know, we would maybe ask Paul, I wish you would have done that. <laughs> so it's not all this guesswork. But I think when it's general like that, it's meant to be general. It's meant to say that the, 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 the coming of the gospel was a powerful event uh, not only in the life of the preacher, but in the life of the church when they received the gospel. And so let me take a stab at what I think he means here. When he says that the word or the gospel came to them in power, I think what he's referring to is the power of a changed life. I think it is the power of transformation. It was the power, look down with me at verse 9 of this first chapter, he says, because it is the power of conversion that you see there, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had, uh, we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That doesn't happen without power. And so when the gospel comes, when the true gospel comes, lives are transformed, lives are changed, they are altered, and things are disturbed, disrupted. People's lives are changed. Families are changed. Communities are changed. Uh, There's an upheaval that happens, and that happens in Thessalonica. There is an upheaval. There's an upheaval within the individuals who are being transformed by the gospel. There's a change in their life, their character. There's an upheaval in their immediate circle of influence, their family, maybe their marriage, maybe their, their uh, community. There's an upheaval in the community, in the town, in the city. The gospel comes, and when it comes, it disrupts. There is a tectonic shift that happens among those people when the gospel comes. Tribes are changed. Persecution is, is unleashed. Power comes. And I don't think he's just talking about miracles. John MacArthur kind of focuses on the same aspect of transformation when he says, Faith does come by hearing those words of truth, but the transformation process involves far more than that. Regardless of the erudition or the compelling logic or the soaring rhetoric or the clever, interesting communication style, that is, of the preacher, if the truth spoken is not accompanied by the power of God, it accomplishes nothing. But when empowered by God, as it, is, as it enters the prepared soul, the gospel truth saves. And I think that's what he's talking about when he speaks of power. It's the power of salvation. It's the power of a changed life. It's the power that you would be denying, according to Paul in, Thessal- uh, in uh, 2 Timothy, when, as he says, a mark of the non-believer is a mark that they deny the power of the gospel. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They deny the power of what? Of godliness. What they're saying is that it doesn't really affect change. And so they deny that the gospel has the power to actually change their lives. That's not what true preaching consists of. True true preaching consists of life-altering power. 
Uh, just jump over to chapter 2 of this letter. Chapter 2, verse 13, kind of a parallel passage, as it were. He says in verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God. See, it's kind of the same context. He's thanking God in chapter 1, thanking God here. The same, same idea. They receive the word in chapter 1. They're receiving the word here. Very close parallel. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. That's a kind of the word only. He says, for, but, but for what it really is, the word of God. See that? That's a miracle when that happens, you guys. When someone receives the word for what it is, the word of God, only God can do that. Only God can change somebody to receive the Word of God as it really is the Word of God, right? You know that. You try with your family members. You try with your kids. You try with your friends. You try with your neighbor and try and try and try. But only God can affect the power so that that person will one day say, this is the Word of God. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, I've told you that for years. But God has to change that person from within or they'll never say that. Or even if they say it, it doesn't mean anything. They just deny the power thereof. There's no real change. But when it's true power, look what it says. The Word of God performs its work in you who believe. See that? That's the Word of God coming in power. This power also serves to illustrate to us what is the source of of the power. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in, in, in verse 1. These, uh, these passages, by the way, were very precious to me. I was studying for this. I, start, I started thinking, it's, all these verses I'm kind of sort of collecting and gathering up, these are all theology of preaching. These are all crucial texts on the kerygma of the New Testament. In other words, the preaching of the New Testament. This is great. This is like a biblical theology of preaching. Ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Well, what does that mean? He came with foolishness? No. In the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2, the word wisdom in this context is to be uh, set in antithesis with the wisdom of the world, with the wisdom of philosophers, the wisdom of, ro- uh, of orators, fanciful orators that would literally make a living by going around and itinerantly speaking in public and trying to gain a hearing and gain a following, usually for financial gain. He says that they were proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, it's almost as if we're saying this is the very heart of the power This is the center, is Christ. I wrote a 180-page book on that verse because it's so crucial. I mean, it's not often the Apostle Paul says, I determined to know nothing else except Christ and Him crucified. I thought that that is an all-determining, all-encompassing resolve. He says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Again, the close association between Spirit and power. And he says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. God is the source of all of this power, and He 
accompanies the gospel when it is rightly and accurately preached. Not only is true gospel preaching powerful preaching, but the second thing, you know where you know what it is. The second thing is that Paul's preaching was also spirit-filled. You see that? Because he says, back in Thessalonians, he says, that our word came to you in power, number one, and in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's very possible, exegetically speaking, okay, that Paul here is literally defining the power. That the power was the Holy Spirit. I say it's not because these are two separate prepositional phrases. In Greek, it's very easy to combine two ideas or two substantives or two nouns by one article and to, and, and to bring these together as one. He doesn't do that here. He says, in power and chi in the Holy Spirit. It's a separate issue. So it's connected. It's really, it's inseparable, but they're not identical. He wants to emphasize a different nuance. In a sense, we can say that the power is the manifestation. It is the show of the source of that power. And what is the source of that power? That power is the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful because we're not just talking about some sort of subjective power that we're talking about, but we're really talking about an objective person who produces that power, which is the Holy Spirit. He is the one to be credited with that power. In a sense... There is no greater blessing or there's no greater goal that a preacher can have for his preaching than that his preaching be accompanied by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's no greater compliment for a preacher and his preaching but that his preaching was accompanied by the Spirit of God. You know what that means, beloved? That you cannot give me enough compliments on my preaching. I do appreciate them. They do encourage me. But really what that means is something like what Paul told the, uh, the Corinthians when he says, look, it's a very small matter for me to be judged by you. He says, as a matter of fact, I don't even judge myself. <laughs> he says, really, what he's saying is that the ultimate judgment, the only judgment that counts is the judgment of God. And so if my preaching is not authentically spirit-filled, if God is not pleased to give His Spirit to the preacher's preaching, then that preaching will lack transformative power. This is from John Piper's little book, which I think is one of the most maybe top five books ever written on the subject of preaching, which is a very small little book, and that's a good thing. Because some preaching manuals are just, just massive tomes. It's like, what did he say on page 359? Like, you know, I'm supposed to remember that when I'm preaching. But this is a small book, but it's a potent dynamite little book. John, uh, Stephen Lawson said he read the entire book on a, on a, on a plane ride uh, for, as he was on the plane for several hours. He says he read that book. It was so dynamite. He said when he got out of, the, uh, out, of the, out of the airplane, he said all he did was just walk around in the airport in circles. He didn't know what to do with himself. <laughs> it will light you on fire if you have a heart to preach. This book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, Paul, uh, John Piper said, without this demonstration of the Spirit and power in our preaching, nothing of any abiding value will be achieved, no matter how many people may admire our, co- our cogency or enjoy our illustrations or learn from our doctrine. The goal of preaching is the glory of God in the glad submission of His people And who can produce the glad submission of the people of God to the Word of God but then the Holy Spirit of God? 
Nobody else. See, in a sense, what the preacher should say is, take away all sort of external show, any eloquence of my own, any academic uh, prowess, any zeal that is maybe made manifest. Take away any magnetic personalities. Take away any influence. Take away any genius or wit or any sort of thing like that. Take away any sort of command of the, of the English language or whatever language. Take away any rhetorical devices that you may know. The cry of every preacher should be that the Spirit of God would attend His Word in the act of preaching. That's what we want. That's what we should pray for. That's what we should, that should be a daily prayer for a preacher is that the Spirit of God would so move through His preaching that the source of the power would be undeniable. After all, it is the Spirit who illuminates His Word. It is the Spirit who inspired His Word. It is the Spirit who brings conviction upon His Word. It is the Spirit who can awaken souls through the implanted Word of life. The Spirit delights in applying the Word to God's people. That's amazing. That's amazing. When he says here, the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, it's almost like, what does he mean the Holy Spirit exactly? Is he talking about, again, some external show of the Holy Spirit? Was it that it was confirmed by, again, maybe signs or wonders or speaking in tongues or, or, or whatever? Any sort of external show? Because those things accompanied the apostles preaching everywhere they went. They were performing signs and wonders. I mean, radical. I think we just completely... Um, you know, we completely miss that point. And, and really what makes the apostolic generation so unique is these epiphanic signs that God was doing through the apostles. I mean, none of us in this room have seen someone raise someone from the dead. Think about what that would do to your psyche. Think about what that would do to you on your ride home or to the restaurant this evening. You think you'd be a little bit zealous a little bit afraid, a little bit just weirded out. Wow, I just saw Paul. A guy fell asleep in preaching. Warning, don't fall asleep in preaching. Guy fell, broke his neck, he died. Paul came over, rose him from the dead. I mean, what do you think? You think that'll make a splash in a community? You think people will get on their community networks and social media networks and start talking about that? Yeah. God was accompanying, so I don't want to divorce the power and the Spirit from the gifts of the Spirit or the, 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 the manifestation of the Spirit to miracles. It certainly was that. But what are the things that are accompanying us now? Well, I would say that above everything, that we still have the Spirit of God, and it's the same uh, spirit ontologically it is the same holy spirit of god though maybe he may not manifest himself in the way that he used to but we still have the spirit of god operating upon our hearts through the preaching of god's word the last thing is that he says the the, the gospel came to them not just in word only but in power and spirit and then this interesting phrase here he says in full conviction. Now, when I say conviction, where does your mind go? 
I think if we're honest, we would think about, well, you mean that the people in Thessalonica were being convicted of their sin. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean conviction as in being convicted of your sin. That's not what he means. What he means by full conviction is that there was a assurance that accompanied the preaching. There was a a confidence. Matter of fact, that's what this Greek word, pleroma, that's what this Greek word really implies here. Or here it's pleroforia, which is just a slightly different uh, uh, use of this word. And it's also accompanied with an adjective, which is much or, or many, or which is uh, uh, full. Right? So what he's saying is that it came with much conviction, which then has to be determined much conviction on the part of who? Much conviction by the church, meaning the church had great confidence in what was being preached in the gospel. That's certainly possible, and I think that's certainly true. I think that's absolutely what happened there. But I think right now what Paul is emphasizing is the, is the confidence or the assurance or the certainty that the apostles had when they were preaching. In other words, they weren't there just with some you know, a mere speculative conversation. They weren't there, you know, just kind of having a dialogue with the Thessalonians. No, 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 no. No. They believed with all their heart. They were, to use a, a really unpopular word today, they were dogmatic that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that He was crucified for sinners. They were dogmatic that if they repented and put their faith in the gospel, they would be saved. There was no doubting it. There was no hesitation. There was a holy dogma about Paul's preaching. Spurgeon says, it is good for a pastor to be dogmatic in his pulpit. I understand what he's saying there. He's saying, don't be wishy-washy. You know, it's no like Rob Bell kind of preaching. It's preach the Word. That's what the people of God need. They don't need a philosopher up there. They don't need a, you know, a, a Dr. Phil psychiatrist or whatever, you know. They don't need an Oprah in the pulpit. They need a preacher, a herald. You know what Lloyd Jones says in his book, Preaching and Preachers, or Preachers and Preachers. I can't ever get the title right. It's the most significant thing he ever wrote. And in that book, he reminded a conference of pastors what preaching actually is. And he says, preaching is not talking. He says, preaching is not lecturing. Preaching is not just repeating history. It's not a historical lesson. Preaching is not a conversation. He said, preaching, you know, the word preaching, you know, kerygma, literally was used in context of a herald who had been given, in a sense, in certain contexts, had been given a message, let's say, from the imperial palace to carry a message and to go into the town and to cry it out, to herald the message, to announce the message. He wasn't there necessarily to give his own opinion. How many times have I been in a witnessing situation where somebody tells me, I know that's what the Bible says, but just tell me what you think. I said, irrelevant. I'm sorry, I'm not here to give you my own thoughts. I'm here to just tell you what the Word of God declares. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 3, because in all of this, in all of this, this confidence, so you may think, don't mistake the confidence that Paul is talking about here from some sort of act of self-reliance or self-dependence. The complete opposite is true. The complete opposite is true. It's not that the preacher not, needs to have attitude. That's not what we're talking about. It's a, it's a different dynamic that really what it is, it's this certainty it, it resides in vessels of clay. It's treasure in earthen vessels. It's, it should be inside of men that know they have nothing good to offer you in themselves. There is nothing about the preacher that sort of adds to the quality of the message or enhances the quality of the message. Nothing can build any sort of scaffolding so that we sort of, you know, renovate the gospel. Nothing. Uh, We are just servants. That's it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I think you have Paul's definitive statement on this issue. And I think by extension, all preachers uh, should find themselves identified here. Even though you're not an apostle. It doesn't matter. The truth, the principle is right. It's, tr- it's true for everyone. He says this, in, beginning in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, he says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Oh, man. Can I confess openly before you, I, myself included, This is a huge prayer need for pastors. I don't know that a lot of pastors are actually convinced of this. I think some pastors think that they're actually needed. I think some pastors think that they're actually necessary in the kingdom of God. I think some pastors, they just have this view of themselves that without me, how is the church going to make it? How is the church going to (laughs) survive? What are you talking about? This is God's church. He doesn't need you. He could take your breath in a second. He doesn't need your oratorical abilities or your seminary training or your Greek and your Hebrew or your theology. He doesn't need your gifts or your talents or your personalities. Are you kidding me? He spoke out of a donkey. Parabolically, we are donkeys. He's still speaking through donkeys today. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. I had a Christian tell me that once, and I was standing outside of doors of a church getting ready to go in, and this brother told me, God needs me to stop. We go no further. We don't go in the door of the church till we settle this right here and right now. I'll tell you how much I love this guy, right? God does not need you. To me, it was like, say it out of your mouth. Don't go into the church thinking God needs you. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need any of us. He creates us by His grace and for His glory. And this is a great privilege. He can put you in the ministry and He can take you out. And so God is where all of our adequacy comes from. That's what Paul says. Not from ourselves, but from God, he says. We also, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. New covenant ministers are made adequate by the grace 
of God. That's where the conviction, that's where the assurance, that's where it comes from. But I don't want to just, well, this was a great sermon to hear about what Pastor Emilio goes through. No. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 because I'm throwing it right back to you, okay? Colossians chapter 2 reminds us that this assurance in the gospel, this confidence, this level of certainty in the gospel is something we all have to have, right? You guys, I want you to write this down today or make a note of it or talk about it over dinner tonight. I was reading this and I I read it so quickly in preparation. I stopped and I thought, I can't believe what I just read. I literally can't believe what I just read in Colossians. I've read that a million times. And I can't believe what I just read in Colossians. This is nuclear strength for Christianity. And I just blip. Just go by like it's just another sentence on a book. No, this is, this is so massive. The gravity of what Paul is saying here. Beginning, oh boy, now that i built it up so much, we'll, we'll go to verse 1. We'll go to verse 1, okay? But we're going to go all the way down to 5, but listen to what he says here. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts, trying to get this thing still, sorry, I don't want this thing to mess us up, their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth. Write that down. Riches, wealth, beyond your wildest dreams. Just read a story the other day. This young kid hits the lottery. $450 million. He's not going to know what to do with it. We have greater wealth than that. We should be like, I I don't know what to do with this. Here, Lynn, you preach. He says here, the wealth that comes from what? That comes from the pleroma of understanding. The full conviction or full assurance of understanding. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. I've said this repeatedly. What is true worship? True worship is the act of ridding ourselves of as many idolatrous concepts and ideas that we might have in our mind and heart. So that what we're left with is this. A true knowledge of God. And here it's that you would have a true knowledge of the gospel, or he says here the mystery, and then he just says Christ. Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that, here's the purpose, no one will delude you through persuasive argument. No false religion, no false argument, no false theology, no liberalism, floating around the solar system of your soul. Get it out. Just had a call this week by a precious sister, pastor's wife, sending her son to Bible college. Bible college. One of the prerequisite books that he needs to read for this Bible college is 
something, I'll paraphrase the title, something like Towards a More Inclusive Christianity, with a subtitle saying that we are getting away from the old models of exclusivistic Christianity and more towards an inclusive form of Christianity that recognizes that Christianity is the best religion among other viable faiths. You're going to pay how much money to send your son there? To do what? Turn tables over? What's he going to do there? But this is... Forget full conviction. That's... Can you believe that, right? I'm just, and of course, you know, I was on the phone and said, get your son out of there as quick as possible, please. Oh, where do we go from here? Well, Paul goes on and he says, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That's why I went to verse 5, because that's what it results in. That's what, when you have dogmatic certainty of the gospel, that is what it should produce. It shouldn't produce an overly dogmatic, critical person, right? It shouldn't produce a know-it-all. It, it should produce someone that is full of joy, so, like Paul, somebody that has discipline, spiritual discipline, and somebody that is stable in the faith. That is what full conviction should produce in their lives. And the Apostle Paul, last of all, if you go back to First Thess, he says in First Thessalonians that the proof was in the pudding. The proof was in the pudding because he says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Literally, the Greek the Greek just reads, just as you know what sort of men we were among you for you. It was all for you, for your sake. That's what it was all about. So, let me say this. Today, when preaching is characterized by power, spirit, and conviction, the following things will be true, always, or else it's not true, or else it's not Um, it's not authentic. Number one, there will be genuine salvation in any community or whatever community it goes to. Number two, there will be a genuine submission to biblical authority and to ecclesiastical authority. That is 1 Thessalonians 2.13 and chapter 5, verse 13. There will be genuine fruit in the church, like what we have already seen. There will also be a genuine pursuit of holiness, as he talks about in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. There will also be a genuine zeal for evangelism. When the gospel is really truly preached, when there is true gospel preaching in any church, there must be genuine zeal for evangelism, which is found in chapter 1, verse 8. There will also be genuine opposition. There will be genuine opposition to the work of the Spirit resulting in the believer's perseverance and endurance. And last of all, turn to chapter 5 of this letter. There will also be a genuine eschatological hope in Christ's return that purifies the church. Look at how he ends uh, this letter, beginning in verse 23. That's right. 
Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, who chose you, who elects you, and He is also faithful to bring it to pass. Let's pray. Father, I think I speak for everybody here when I say that there are often several things either internally within ourselves or external forces or factors that we base our Christianity on. There are always things that we depend on, that we lean on. There are other things that we set our hope upon. But here, we're instructed that it is You who will bring it to pass. And so, Lord, would You be that undeniable center in our Christian faith? Will You be the source of our strength? Will You be the One who makes us adequate so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, we have no sufficiency in ourselves. We are inadequate in ourselves. And we know that you, by your grace, must, you must come with power and your Holy Spirit and in much conviction. We pray that you would work all these things among us. I pray this selfishly for myself, by your grace and for your glory, that the preaching of this pulpit would be attended by your Holy Spirit. And that we would see lives, souls changed. That we would see people drawn, called. That we would see people transformed. That they would be justified. And that, oh God, by Your grace, they will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.